0: Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky.
1: Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salu, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And
2: alam, greetings, this is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy
1: Fika, a podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators, where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden,
2: a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and
0: attitude. It's all about slowing down.
1: And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat.
0: So join us.
2: Hey everyone! It's great to see you all again. Back on the Pharmacy Fika, and we're here having some snacks together. We also have a special guest today. Steve Scott from Purdue University College of Pharmacy has joined us today, I'm talking about a topic that I think will be really relevant to everybody. But before we get started, I wanted to find out what everyone's having for their snack today. I I brought these these um, they're called thin addictive little. I don't know what they are, but they got cranberries and almonds and it's a little biscuit and, and it's a low amount of calories. So I, I kind of like that. Plus some black tea because I need a little caffeine. So, Steve, since you're our guest, what'd you bring?
3: Well, I have my uh, standard, which is coffee. I'm a coffee drinker. But I also have uh, my Biscoff cookies or, as they say in Belgium, uh, speculoos or speculos cookies spice cookies um and what i didn't realize is that biscoff is basically biscuits and coffee that's where the name come from but it makes me think i'm on a delta flight at the moment so long long, for the times when i used to fly you know so that's that's my snack
4: that was exactly what i was about to say i was like it reminds me of those times when we used to fly
2: (laughs) yeah tina what about you what'd you bring
4: I have my usual George Clooney Nespresso, which I enjoy so much with its lovely crema and a delicious piece of dark chocolate. Ah, reminiscent of, I think, what
2: Kristen brought last time. But I don't know what she's got this time.
1: I have got some macadamia nuts, salt and pepper macadamia nuts. And no tea today, just some water. Just channeling my Jeff.
0: And Jeff, did you bring something other than water this time? So because Steve was here, I thought I needed to like step it up a little. So instead of water, I brought sparkling water today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you go. Still healthy still healthy yeah
2: well um i don't know about all of you but we have this this third fourth fifth wave of COVID 19 uh with the omicron variant is uh It's really hit us here in Mississippi this past month. We've had a lot of our faculty out. We've had a lot of our students out, people having to be quarantined. Luckily, you know, no one's seriously ill. Everyone's been vaccinated. So that's been very fortunate. But we've had a lot of disruption as we've started this new semester as we're recording this.
1: And I'm just wondering how it's affected all of you. Well, not only by Omicron, and we are live, um, we didn't take a two-week online, we are live from the start, but it's also like minus 14 today. So, and that's without windchill. That's <laughs> just
2: minus 14. Oh, my word. It's surprising the virus is
3: able to survive. <laughs> Steve, how about at Purdue? We have been, for the most part, uh, keeping things rolling. We've had to change some of the protocols on campus with respect to Uh, increased testing, they've been ordering more masks and a a variety of things. Um, And I I guess what, what concerns me most is just the uncertainty that we're still going through. You know, you're trying to plan out the semester and trying to re engage students and and every time you think you're taking one step forward, you're like taking a half a step back. And and uh, and I frankly I'm very concerned about the healthcare industry. Uh I don't know, just the burden that's being placed on the industry and the number of people leaving it right now because of burnout, etc. that that bothers me as well. So So, you know, despite my best
0: efforts, about three or four weeks ago I got COVID. So that threw a wrench into some plans into a mission trip that I was supposed to lead into Mexico, that that got canceled because of that. Um, Fortunately, I kind of, hopefully I've got it out of the way before the semester started, Uh, you know, and, and now here we're, we're face to face, but sort of like Steve said, we're dealing with, you know, a decently large percentage of students who are out at any given day. And I was telling Kristen beforehand how that has really increased my time spent on teaching significantly, just dealing with the accommodations and the extra emails and the makeups and rethinking things that I've done in the past because of issues that might arise and and just not wanting to take the chance. So uh, not it's not just me that's having those, but it's definitely affected us here.
4: Yeah, we, um, I, like Jeff, I'm going to put it out there. I got Omicroned over the holidays, my first holidays back in the States in five years, and yet, I still experienced it over Zoom because I was sick. <laughs> um, but and I, I really do want to say that because I had a couple of people say, "Oh, are you ashamed?" And I went, "No, I'm not. I mean, I I am vaccinated. I wear a mask everywhere. I keep my hands clean, and I I want to normalize us talking about that because I think that influences our students and trainees as well. But we made the decision to do first two weeks online experiential staying. Staying as well as it can go, I'm cautiously optimistic we'll be back January 31st, but it had a big effect on our interprofessional program. So we had 850 pharmacy, medicine, dentistry, nursing, physical therapy, and PA students starting an interprofessional course that's facilitated by practitioners in all those fields. And we actually made the decision that if we took out 850 learners and all the facilitators, it would crash the campus educationally and the health system. So that course will continue in online format throughout the semester, which was, you know, that was a big decision, but at least it gave us time to come up with a, a better online program versus just the the fast flip, which we, I think we all, nobody loved those days. <laughs> Well, I
2: know the topic that you wanted to bring to us, Tina, and, and and this was one that you suggested a while ago. But I think it's really relevant to this whole discussion because we have so many faculty out, unable to deliver their instruction, and we're covering for each other. So why don't you introduce the topic, how you got interested in it, and you know um, how it's relevant to pharmacy education?
4: Definitely. Well, you guys, you know, know that I'm mildly obsessed with taking topics of clinical relevance. And looking at how they apply in the educational spaces. So, I had listened to um, a podcast that I love called Freakonomics MD, and um, hearing them discuss about some papers looking at whether patients do better when the um, when the specialists are all the way at a conference. Now, there's several papers, and these will be linked in our in our um, show notes that. Ultimately found that patients got better and it made me wonder about are students better in the classroom when we have people that mostly spend time in the classroom with them and that consistency over time. Which led me to a fascinating commentary from 2015 about utility infielders. One of my colleagues here said a group of specialists trying to train general- generalists. And how difficult that is and with the pandemic and having to cross cover and back cover I thought wouldn't it be nice to revisit this idea of in our classrooms and educational spaces you know are we really looking for what's been called utility infielders I'm gonna turn it over to Steve to describe what that is
3: well um I guess it's because I'm old enough, I, I, and I have always been a baseball fan, but there was, there, th- most teams had a utility infielder, and that, that was a player who was never one of the stars, but could always play multiple positions. And and so if somebody got injured, or <laughs> this doesn't happen anymore, they used to play double headers on, on Sunday. And uh, it, the utility infielder would oftentimes play in the second game at a position and give one of the starters rest or whatever. And, but they would always be able to fill in, you know. Multiple skills, had experience in different kind of venues, and they were always there when needed. And you know that those positions have kind of gone away. There's still a few of them out there, but it it really made me it come to, it come to mind when we were redoing the curriculum, and suddenly we had these new areas to teach, and you said, well, who's going to teach these in the spec in Individuals who are specialized in oncology or whatever, and these are kind of general topics. And they said, "Well, that's not my area. You know, I can't, I can't teach that." And and it made me think about this. And and I thinking like, okay, don't we all kind of start out with the same general sort of education, and you know, we all have the same baseline. But suddenly, if we start specializing, we can't, we can't even lead a discussion about some of these general topics anymore. So that's how it, how it kind of got started and what made me write the commentary
2: but there are, there are incentives, obviously, for people to you know specialize. And, and this is true both in practice, because that's where the money is, right, in specialization. But even within faculty, that's where the money is. Because if you want to get grants, if you want to do research, if you want to get promoted, you've got to be known for something. And that's where specialization really forces us down. But then it ha- does have this negative consequence, I think, is, is it makes us all like only pigeonholed in our little area, and then we just cannot. Not fill in or do anything for anybody else because we don't know anything about it anymore.
3: Yes. yes.
4: Well, and Stuart, I think that also applies. I mean, you know, we're sort of focused on the, cl- the clinical sciences areas, but it's the biomedical sciences as well. I did a quick look in the AACP job listings and you don't see, you know, someone asking for pharmacology, medicinal chemistry, pharmaceutics. Those are probably titles that are unfundable in the research realm anymore (laughs) so you have to be very very specific you know uh, this protein this you know this specific type of technology and yet the students that we train you know somebody still has to make a suppository you know
1: (laughs) I always think about things with my administrative hat on and and I think of the that many times that people have stepped in, not just because of COVID, but because of parental leaves, because of semester leaves, because of retirements, and how much we appreciate that, how much work it is on their part to maybe be moving from course to course, you know, different every year, and having to relearn that content area and figure out how to approach those topics and. And what are the best pedagogies to use? And where should I aim my assessments at? And then then the next semester, they have to do it again with a different topic. And how hard that work is on a generalist when, when we position people that way. And then I feel like sometimes it's not valued. You know, like it's it, the work is done, but that because they're a generalist, and that we maybe kind of diminish those contributions, even though they're so important. And, and maybe even, like you mentioned earlier, Help the students. Help the students to relate to the topic and and bring it to to them at their level.
0: So the funny thing is, I was discussing Steve your article, and I won't say discussing. I brought it up and mentioned it. This has been three or four weeks ago before we even decided on this topic, in um, in a little small group small group of faculty, and in my row, fairly new row as vice chair, I've now come more attuned to the needs of covering the curriculum and the issues that that can present with getting all the required courses covered, particularly as we and and many other schools have done this over the past three or four years have lost several faculty to retirement and are losing a couple more soon. You know, positions that other people have left and because of budgetary and other reasons have not been filled and or have gotten uh large grant funding and all of those things have taken away from teaching doe to where it is a we're at a struggle to put people in all the required courses right now and as we were looking ahead for hopefully potentially some new hires you know one of the things you know that we we talked about was we need someone who can play multiple roles Um, you know another specialist will help maybe in specific things but we need someone who can step in and teach two or three or four different courses steve i don't know if you remember this we discussed your article at aacp you and i sat down and had a long discussion about this and i guess it's probably been five six
3: years ago and it's kind of funny now this is here we are again yeah yeah it 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 is and i i think about my own my own kind of journey here is I coordinate a population health course. Now, I am not trained in the area. You know, that was not my background, but someone left on sabbatical and they're looking around and and I just it, we asked two or three people, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And I said, well, I'll do it. Actually, I found it to be a wonderful thing for me personally, because I deal with now these topics that I'm actually very passionate about in healthcare general topics, not specific topics. And I found it very fulfilling, uh, to do that. And, and so that's something else sometimes when you get out of your, your area, but you, you can grow and you can get a lot of satisfaction out of that as well.
2: Yeah. This reminds me of the book range. And I know that, um, yeah, you know, you've got it right in front of you. Look at that. Oh,
1: everyone's pulling out copies of it. Mine's on my iPad. I'm reading it too.
2: So a uh, terrific book. Uh, I know Jeff has also read it, but everyone raised their copies of re- range when I said that. But the Fika Book Club. <laughs> absolutely. It would be a great book club for faculty to participate in. But you know, this idea that narrowing our focus and becoming specialized makes us less uh, open-minded gets us more stuck in our ways because we think we're experts at something and we're less willing to experiment and try other things because we get very narrowly focused. And I think you in, you articulated it very well, Steve, which is, is this idea when we step out of our comfort zone, we learn new things, we begin to see connections between our old knowledge and this new body of knowledge. And it's, it, it allows creativity. It, I mean, it, it opens up new doors that I think when people specialize too much, they're, they're closing themselves off to things, you know, they're closing themselves off to
4: things. But one thing that really struck me about what Steve said was, you know, he you could really hear the intrinsic motivation being activated, right? He was like, this wasn't my area, but I realized as a generalist I could thread through things I was very passionate about. Now, I would suggest perhaps our extrinsic reward systems are gamed towards the specialist, Right. And that sort of leads me to this next part of the conversation, which is, I think our team teaching is bringing in lots of different people. I wonder if it's safe for our students when we do it that way.
2: Yeah, so when you use the word safe here, and I know you put it in quotes, air quotes, which our audience cannot see, (laughs) but I I think you mean educationally, it's not as good for our students to have so many different instructors in a course who are all specialists when they would be better served by a generalist teaching the whole thing from beginning to end, like Steve does in his population health course, I assume, as you're the primary instructor.
3: I I am, but I I bring in, a lot of different people, but they tend to be not our own faculty, and they are individuals from the outside world who eat and breathe population health every day. But you are the common thread through the entire course. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We, we recently just had this discussion in our oncology area. Oncology is becoming so specialized in our concern that our students are, are just getting blown away by that uh infectious disease is another area that sometimes i think our students you know they don't see the forest for the trees sometimes yeah you know, that's a that's a struggle and, and i think we're all facing it and and the, the more specialized we get the bigger problem and, and it reminds me of the book range they talk about the i think it's, they call them polymaths individuals who have this you have a focused area in 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 one area, but you 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 still have this broad interest in a broad knowledge, and I I pull that back to a professional issue. I think that's why in many situations pharmacists are thriving now in the healthcare system. We bring this this depth in with respect to drugs, and but we have this appreciation for the broad picture of healthcare that many other healthcare professionals don't necessarily have, and I think. That's why sometimes especially in ambulatory care areas, et cetera, why pharmacists are now actually thriving in those areas.
1: I've been thinking a little bit about um generalist versus specialist. And we've had conversations, you know, in that terms, generalist versus specialist. And and I, I think that's unfortunate. And I understand why why specialty is almost revered, right? Uh, and like we've said, the systems kind of support that. And it can be hard to value generalists in a, in a specialist world. Um, but I've been thinking about what are the core attributes really, when we say we, we want a, a generalist to help in this space or that space, in this classroom, and this rotation or whatnot, what are the core attributes we're really looking for? And I think one of them is agility, and and can we foster agility not just in these generalists but in in our specialists as well as we think about teaching? Can we can we put people in different environments and quickly get up to speed on what the needs of those particular learners are? Um, quickly understand kind of the history of how the teaching has happened and and where the opportunities for improvement are. You know where they're where they're going to have to place their energy. Like there's a certain I don't know a, a, a skill set I think that that comes with being able to read the environment like that and, and understand the problems and move into that space with a level of confidence, but also humility. And I, I just wonder about that, that notion of agility in teaching and whether we can, we can play with that because maybe we'll never kind of win the fight to, to um, recognize generalists and to place generalists and have generalists, but maybe we can have conversations about building agility.
4: I uh-huh, like that. I like that focus on the skill, not necessarily. I'm, I've been think I've been thinking about it totally as the system is stacked against. And so I did. I, did, I was going to ask you guys: Do any of your schools have a track where you can, you know, either be tenured or promoted based on generalist skills, in particular teaching skills? I would say in that area. Yeah, I wouldn't say we have a track, although we do have people who
2: get promoted. Who, you know, as their area of expertise is is in the teaching, but it is more challenging, particularly if you're in a tenure track, because often tenure track requires some sort of funding and scholarship and being well known in that area, and that's really challenging to do if you're if you're a generalist, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the system is 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 kind of stacked against that. So I do like. Kristen's idea, though, what are the skill sets? So we understand that the system is structured around specialization and we, and that's where knowledge is advanced by specialists generally. Um, but how do we cultivate the skills that would be to have the curiosity? And I think there's a benefit, by the way. I, I think there's a benefit if you're a specialist in one area and being kind of a polymath, meaning being open to broadly sampling lots of different things because it informs your area of specialty. It makes you open-minded to new ideas and how it might apply in your own specialty. And that's how where a lot of advancements come really is taking something that's in a different field and applying it in a new way in another field, right? So I I think it's actually very healthy to have this kind of um, cross-discipline way of looking at things. And also there's this idea that we, Need experience, enough experience in an area to get really good at it, right? Which requires some technical skills, but you want to have the creativity of being broadly informed by a bunch of other things too, right? And that helps in the interpersonal skills, the caring skills, those sorts of things. Because if you're only technically skilled, we've all experienced it, either a physician or even a teacher who's technically skilled but just has no interpersonal skills, no caring skills, none of those other sets of skills, which are so critically important for teaching and caring for patients. And we gotta have them all, right? So you gotta be curious about all those other things too, not just your discipline. So how do we cultivate that, that curiosity, that agility?
3: Your are um point about agility, I think it's great. And it made me think about, which I referred to in my commentary, um, the original, what I call them clinical pharmacy people like Bob Chalmers and those folks, they were originally pharmacologists and, and they saw where pharmacy was going And they created clinical pharmacy because there was no clinical pharmacy. And so that makes me think they were agile to say, you know, I was trained as a pharmacologist. That's where my bread and butter. But this seems so much more exciting to me. And I'm going to take my knowledge of my professional knowledge. We're going to teach students differently. Uh, And there was a whole cadre of those individuals at that time.
1: No, I was just thinking about um, Steve's description of border, what I would consider border crossing, right? Like seeing, having some skill, seeing some opportunity, and kind of boldly stepping forward across and making that new role. Uh, maybe that's something we should highlight as as something that generalists are able to do and can be supported in doing and finding those you know, building on Stuart's ideas around curiosity, too, you know, looking for those opportunities and maximizing those opportunities.
0: So, so I've got a, a book that came to mind that actually ties together really pieces of what each one of you have said. And some of you may have read it or not. It's, it's called The Innovator's DNA. And there's really um, Clayton Christensen is the kind of the, the last author on that. But these characteristics that make for innovative entrepreneurs. And one of them is associating. And, Stuart, just like you said, of taking information from one specialty or field, making it to another. There's networking, observing, experimenting, questioning. All of these sound very much like skills of a a scholar. Um, And I think this kind of speaks to that agility that if you can do those, you can associate, you can question, you can observe and network. You can learn a lot, but then you can also make some really inroads into whether it's teaching or whether it's your research or or whatever. So, um, yeah, that just kind of fit right in with everything each one of you said.
4: Brilliant. Brilliant. That was a really nice way to tie it all together. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think we have run out
2: of time. We've had our 30-minute coffee break together. And so this is going to conclude our uh, FICA episode. I think Kristen's up for our next conversation. I don't know if she's already pitched a topic. Have you?
1: I am working on a topic, but I'm going to keep my lips sealed right now. It'll be a surprise.
2: All right. All right. So we'll, you all, our audience will have to figure out what the topic is when you tune in for episode four, but thanks for joining us today, everybody. And thanks to all of you and Steve, especially. Thanks for joining us.
3: It's great being here. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve.
1: Bye everyone.
2: Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy
0: coffee and
4: conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a
1: colleague and be sure to rate us.
0: You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space.
1: Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Pharmacy Bye for now. Namaste. vidanya. Au revoir.